This week, good ideas spread in birds as well as people. Once we built up a knowledge of this social network, we were able to plant new behaviours into it. And some arty etchings on shells that are half a million years old. It looks a bit like a zigzag pattern. It's hardly visible. It's only when you have light from a certain angle that it stands out. Plus, can we please just have a quantum computer already? This is The Nature Podcast for December the 4th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. First up, we sent Noah Baker to some woods just outside of Oxford in the UK to see how ideas spread amongst our feathered friends. Bird culture, if you will. From ice bucket challenges to the Harlem Shake, in the internet age, ideas spread like wildfire. But this isn't just a human phenomenon. Lucy Aplin and a team from the University of Oxford in the UK has been investigating the development of cultures in wild birds, specifically great tits which live in a woodland just a short flip from the Oxford campus. Lucy has taken me out on a grey December morning to show me this bird-based culture in action. Lucy, how many examples of animals sharing information like this are there? Well, we don't have many examples from um, the wild. And actually, one of the best examples we do have is from great tits and blue tits, the famous milk bottle innovation that many of your listeners might have heard of. When in the earliest 20th century in the south of England, birds started piercing through the tops of milk bottles left on doorsteps to steal the cream. And then this behaviour seemed to spread throughout the entirety of Britain, although it wasn't particularly well understood at the time what was going on. So it's something that we've observed a long time ago, but we still don't know that much about how this really works, how this process works. What are you trying to do here with the work that you're doing? We were lucky enough to start with a really good understanding of the underlying social network here at Whiteham Woods. Um, And we measured this through pit tagging of birds. So we simply put a microchip on their legs, which is very similar to what you might get in your dog or cat. And we measure their visits to a grid of feeders that are fitted with antenna to register these pit tags. And so we can get an understanding of where they're foraging and who they're foraging with. And once we built up a knowledge of this social network, we were able to take this and plant new behaviours into it. Plant new behaviours? What, what, what does that mean? How do you plant a behaviour? <laughs> Well, so we targeted certain birds and we caught them, we brought them into captivity and we trained them to solve a simple puzzle. All they had to do to solve this puzzle was to push a door, either left or right, a sliding door, to gain access to a hidden feeder behind the door. And in some populations we trained the birds to push the door to the left and in other populations we trained them to push it to the right. We then reintroduced these birds back into their populations and we distributed these puzzle boxes throughout the areas. And all of these puzzle boxes were fitted with basically little computers and RFID antenna that would register when birds came to them and then record what they did and then automatically reset the whole thing for the next bird. So I think if we're going to really understand this, we should probably go find one. And I understand that there's one just over that hill over there. Okay, so so this is one of your feeders just ahead of us. Yeah, it looks like one's just coming in now. There it goes. Um, so this site's really quite busy, but when it's really busy, they tend to form a nice sort of orderly queue along um, the back of the cage, waiting for the term we call it our, our British tip behaviour. 
So this is one of our feeding stations. Um, you'll see it's enclosed in a large cage to keep out squirrels because otherwise they absolutely massacre our equipment. Um, but inside this cage, which the smaller birds can fly through easily, uh, we have, so I'll just open it up for us. We've got one of our standard data logging antenna and we then have one of my puzzle boxes. Initially you released birds that have been trained to open the puzzle in one way or another. What did you find when they were first released? So we released two birds in each subpopulation. They very quickly started solving at the site we released them to once they encountered the puzzle boxes and they were really faithful to which side they'd been trained on. We then started to see this new behaviour being taken up by the other birds in the local area. The really interesting thing is that they were very strongly biased in these populations to the original behaviour, the left or right tradition that was introduced. Even when they encountered the other side, so some birds had discovered that um, by pushing on the other side they could get the same reward, birds still conformed to follow the same side which was originally introduced. And also very interesting, we had a few migrants that moved between these different subpopulations and when birds moved into a subpopulation that had a different tradition to the one that they had left, they changed their behaviour to match the local tradition. So we have this fantastic situation where over this larger woodland area we have a patchwork of different traditions um, for different areas. And how similar is this to the kinds of things that we might see in human populations? Well, we're still trying to understand this. What we think it is, is a preference for social information over their own personal information. So humans do this an awful lot. I think everybody's very familiar with the idea of conforming and conformity. However, it's thought that we tend to do it in order to uh, follow the crowd or um, fit in. And we don't think that's what the birds are doing, but we do see a similar result. We think that social learning is a really quick and relatively cheap way of acquiring new behaviours. Rather than being genetically hardwired to perform certain behaviours, your best option might actually be to observe the birds that already occur in that local environment and copy what they're doing. And you've studied great tits here. What about other kinds of birds? Interestingly, we do see um, an uptake of this behaviour in the other local species, but we don't know how it might transfer between species. Are they all sort of one collective mass, or does information have to hop rarely between species and then spread within? OK, well, I think we've talked for more than long enough and it's probably time to get away from this uh, puzzle box and let the great tits that are in the tree next to us have their lunch and solve their puzzle. That was Lucy Aplin talking to Noah in Whiteham Woods near Oxford. Coming up, fracking quakes and drunken monkeys, well, primates, in the research highlights. And we discover some arty ancestors. First, though, take solace in this quantum story. In 1981, the American physicist Richard Feynman gave a lecture about quantum computers. At this point, they were fiction. He imagined a machine that would tap into the weirdness of quantum mechanics to perform calculations beyond the wildest algorithms of our classical computers. That lecture's widely credited with launching the field, which is still buzzing today. And whilst we're still a way off ordering our quantum laptops, physicists have been systematically smashing through the fundamental hurdles to creating a working quantum computer, and the finish line is in sight. Apparently. 
To hear how far we have left to go, I consulted my go-to geek on these matters, Lizzie Gibney. She's written a feature this week about the quest for quantum computers. So Lizzie, just take us back to basics. How are quantum computers different from their classical counterparts? So in a classical computer, you tend to have the information stored in bits, which are either ones or zeros. Now, in this bizarre quantum world, as we often like to call it, it's actually possible to have systems where you represent both a one and a zero at the same time. This means that you're able to do something that's very clever indeed. Rather than in a normal computer looking through each of the different possible solutions to a question in turn, what you can do in a quantum computer is by entangling all of these different quantum systems together, you can actually effectively look through all those different options at once. And that rapidly speeds up how quickly you can do certain types of calculations. And there are some giants investing in this research right now, aren't there? Google, IBM, Microsoft. That would suggest that at least they think that quantum computers are will be a reality. Absolutely. There might be some real payoffs for doing this. It's been a, a desire for about 30 years now to be able to create these computers. But as I guess we're going to discuss, it hasn't actually been that easy. But hang on, haven't we had people talking about having created successful quantum computers in the past? Yes, so we have computers that certainly work in a quantum way. What we're talking about here is something really specific, and that's a universal quantum computer, i.e. one that is programmable and can perform any algorithm. So very analogous to the computer that you'd have at home. What has been holding us back then? The idea for it seems great, as I just explained before, but the problem is with any of these quantum states, they're very, very fragile. You might have a stray photon, you might have a nearby magnetic field, or you might just have noise in an electrical wire, and that makes the quantumness of the system break down. So these quantum bits, or qubits as they're called, are just incredibly fragile entities, and so far we just can't protect them from breaking down. Exactly. So they're actually very, very difficult to work with. And if you're going to do any calculations with them, you need them to last long enough that you can do those operations. And also you need to be able to manipulate them. And a lot of the time there, you add errors into the system. The problem with the quantum system as well is, as I said at the beginning, to do the calculation, you have to entangle a lot of different qubits. If you have one of them that goes wrong because of, as I say, it could be a stray photon, then actually that can cause the breakdown of the whole system. What kind of advances have we made then in increasing the stability of these qubits and and correcting these errors? An awful lot of it has been just figuring out the basic physics in each different system and different labs learning about their particular setup and how to get rid of all of these different obstacles, all the, the noise that could impact the system that could make the qubits break down. Another kind of angle that we've been coming at this from is to also think, well, if we know there are going to be errors, are there ways in which we can cope with those errors? In classical computers, they do that in a number of ways, but a very common one is just by making multiple copies of a bit. Can't really do that in quantum systems, not least because copying a quantum state actually destroys it. So they've tried a number of different ways of trying to create quantum error correction codes. One that they've succeeded in doing very recently is something called the surface code. Generally, the idea is that you would be spreading the quantum information across a number of individual physical qubits. So in that way, you wouldn't have the same problem if something went wrong with an individual qubit. The code would be able to cope with that and it wouldn't actually destroy the overall, what they often say is a logical or a virtual qubit. Does that make sense, Jeff? 
quantum clear. So does that mean then that there are no more kind of fundamental roadblocks to getting us a quantum computer? We've certainly come an awfully long way. So we've got a thousand times more accurate and we've reduced how accurate we need to be by a thousand times. There's probably about another 10 times better we need to get in terms of the qubits. But there aren't really many fundamental roadblocks to doing that. One of the challenges now is just scaling up. Assuming we do get our hands on one of these universal quantum computers, what are we going to use them for? To get the benefits of a quantum computer over a classical computer, you would need an awful lot of qubits, which we won't have in the near future. So instead, what people are looking at are some applications that will really be able to make use of these 100 qubits or so. One that was quite exciting that I heard about was in chemistry, actually. You could use the qubits to model um, the different kind of interactions that you might have in a chemical reaction. Um, so the one that I focus on in the piece is the, is the harbour process, getting nitrogen from the air into fertiliser. Now, that is a, a process that costs a lot of money and uses about 5% of the world's supply of natural gas. If we could really study in detail what goes on in that process, we might be able to find a catalyst that could do it a lot cheaper and a lot better. Are there any people who just think this is never going to work? There are always naysayers. And it's a difficult one because it, people have been looking at this for years and they've had a lot of problems. Some people do think it's a bit like fusion, which is perpetually 50 years in the future. But maybe it's a little better with quantum computers. It's perpetually 20 years in the future. So a little more optimistic. Thanks, Lizzie Gibney, for stopping in. Read her feature for free at nature.com slash news. Now, have you got a burning science question you want answered? Why not have the Nature podcast team answer it for you? We'd like your ideas on the science question you'd like an answer to in 2015. We'll ask the experts and try to answer it in the first show of the new year. So if you've got a science query but you're too lazy to Google it yourself, send it to us by December the 14th to be in with a chance of winning a top-of-the-range, shiny new, exclusive answer. Well, we'll just answer your question for you. More science questions answered right now. It's the Research Highlights, read by Emily Bannum. Two earthquakes felt near the English town of Blackpool in 2011 were caused by fracking, confirms a new paper. Even at the time of the quake, suspicion fell on the mining company Quadrilla, who were testing their fracking protocol nearby. They were sending water and sand down into the ground to fracture rock and let out trapped natural gas. Now, a study led by a Quadrilla scientist confirms that the fracking caused a long dormant fault to move. This is the first time that earthquakes induced by fracking have been felt in Europe, though it's happened in North America before. More in Geophysical Research Letters. Primates got their first taste of alcohol from fermented fruits 10 million years ago. Some theories suggest that humans and alcohol became frenemies very recently, thousands of years ago. Geneticists looked at the gene for alcohol dehydrogenase, which helps break down ethanol, in primates. A single mutation 10 million years ago seems to have endowed our ancestors with the ability to cope better with ethanol. At this time, they were also hopping down from the trees to live on the ground, where all sorts of fermenting fruits were readily available. Alka-Seltzer, however, was not. The journal PNAS has that paper. Humans started doodling long before bored office workers put pen to paper. 
Our species, Homo sapiens, has long been known to paint on cave walls and etch patterns on shells and other objects. But a new study suggests that our ancestors, a species called Homo erectus, were also doodlers. Josephine Jordans, a biologist at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and her team discovered geometric scratchings on a mussel shell, doodled by Homo erectus half a million years ago. The shells also had holes in them where they'd been broken open to be eaten. The remains were first discovered a century ago at a dig site called Trinil on the Indonesian island of Java. But are they art? Jordans ponders that question in conversation with nature reporter Ewan Calloway. Can you describe the engraving for us? It looks a bit like a zigzag pattern, and it has a part that is almost a complete zigzag. It's like an M-shaped. And then if you go a bit further on the shell, it kind of fades away because the shape of the shell is more rounded and more rough. So these are from Indonesia, these shells? The shells were discovered by a paleontologist who excavated the site of Trinil on Java more than 100 years ago. And they've been sitting in a museum in Leiden for more than 100 years? They have. They have been stored in boxes for such a long time, and they have been inspected about in the 1930s of the, the last century. But even though they were handled, people never found this engraving, and that's because it's hardly visible. It's only when you have light from a certain angle that it stands out. So it's not surprising that it hasn't been found before. So what were the circumstances that you and your team were, were looking at these shells anew and you, you found these perforations and engravings? It's kind of a coincidence the way things often go. You're looking for something else and then you find something that you don't expect. My interest was to look at uh, possible marine influence in Trinil. And I thought that there should be some marine shells as well. I didn't find those. But I did find many uh, freshwater shells that looked a bit odd because they were so similar in size and it looked like something out of a factory almost. What happened then was that also by coincidence, an Australian colleague on his way to Ethiopia uh, stayed over in, in the Netherlands. So he spent one whole day making photos of all the shells from Trinil in the Dubois collection. And while he was inspecting those photos, that's when he saw the engraving. What's the significance of seeing markings or perforations in, in shells? Why do, why do archaeologists, why are they so interested in it? Well, any hominin or human-made modification tells you something about the behavior of these creatures. Whoever did this made a real effort to manufacture these straight lines and those sharp turns, which really demands a certain purposefulness, you could say, and also dexterity. How old were these shells that you looked at? Yeah, that was another very important thing for us to establish. There was a lot of uncertainty on the age of Trinil, and we were lucky that we found sediment inside the shells so that they could be dated. So we were able to pinpoint an age of about half a million years. At that time, there was no other hominin, as far as we know, around on the island of Java. So it must have been Homo erectus. Would you call the engravings art? Oh, that's a very good question. If you don't know the intention of the person who made it, it's impossible to call it art. But on the other hand, it is, a you could say, an ancient drawing. What was meant by the person who did this, we simply don't know. It could have been 
maybe to impress his girlfriend or to doodle a bit or to mark the shell as his own property. All kinds of reasons you could think of, but the bottom line is that we simply cannot know. Just a few weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about these very old cave paintings done by Homo sapiens in, in Indonesia on the island of Sulawesi. And the conclusion was that maybe figurative behavior, whatever you want to call it, art, was a lot more common than, than we've thought. I mean, what does this discovery in Homo erectus say about that? Yeah, I think it is. it does show that it was definitely not something that was done only by Homo sapiens, and it was not something that was only occurring in Africa. This cannot be compared to the cave art from Sulawesi, which, which was really uh, of, of another order. But it does show that instead of this kind of behavior being the result of a kind of sudden spark, it was something that accrued gradually, that was arising gradually and being developed into ever more sophisticated drawings like the ones we see in Sulawesi. And Ewan has stuck around to chat about this week's news. Hi, Ewan. Hi, I'm back. Last week, of course, the 26th of November, results were reported for the, one of the first safety trials of an Ebola vaccine. Right. This was a, a vaccine similar to vaccines that are going to be tested next year in West Africa to see if we can you know, use a vaccine to interrupt uh, the awful outbreak. But before you do that, you got to determine whether uh, the vaccine is safe. So trials have been going on in the U.S., in Europe, and even in Africa amongst small numbers of people, dozens, no more than a, a couple hundred, to see if these vaccines are safe. So as you said, then, a few safety trials are up and coming and results coming out of this first one that's been done by a team at NIH. What exactly have they been looking at? What they did was that they took a vaccine that had already been in development uh, with the drug company GlaxoSmithKline, and they gave the vaccine to 20 healthy people in the U.S. at no risk of developing Ebola. And the first question they were asking was, is this vaccine safe? And it was. Um, a couple of people ran a, a, a fever within a day of the vaccine, but that resolved itself. Nobody had any major problems. But more importantly, what they're looking at is what kind of immune response do you command against Ebola? Because that's the point of a vaccine, to expose you to uh, proteins from a virus and, and see what kind of immune response you develop. And people are going to be very closely looking at these immune responses. Uh, in, in this specific trial, patients developed some immune response, but only when they received a, a rather high dose of the vaccine. Next month, there are going to be larger efficacy trials in West Africa. This stuff takes time. Uh, the outbreak continues to roll on. But I suppose, actually, in the, in the world of clinical trials, this is quite a rapid response. Yeah. I mean, I was speaking with Jeremy Farrar, the director of the Wellcome Trust, uh, last week, and, and he said that, you know, we all could have been quicker. But you're right. This is, this is rather quick. This first trial was started in September. Here we are in November. We've got results from this one. We'll have results from others in the coming days and weeks. And, you know, by early 2015, we'll have We'll have decisions on which vaccines are going to go into efficacy trials in West Africa. So that's pretty fast. What else is there to add to the sort of to-do list of researchers who are trying to develop these vaccines and thinking about how to implement them in the field? People are looking closely at side effects. You know, yes, I, I just said that these vaccines are safe, but... One of the vaccines, the vaccine that was tested, whose results were reported last week, induced a, a mild fever 
and patience within you know, a day of getting the vaccine, which was no problem for them. But if you're in West Africa and you're potentially exposed to Ebola, that's, a, that's another symptom of early Ebola infection. So that's a potentially confounding factor. Is there anything we can learn from the science of having developed these vaccines or from kind of the process and the speed at which they've been going that we could transfer to other diseases? Yeah, I mean, the reason that these vaccine trials are proceeding at the pace they are is because these these are vaccines that have been sitting on, uh, you know, drug company cabinet shelves for years and and haven't moved to development. So they were they were kind of ready um, uh, with other diseases, you know, where you don't have a vaccine at all, that that's going to be a challenge. So a lot of people are interested in in you know how can we more quickly develop vaccines. What this does show, though, that I think is interesting and important, is that you need to react quickly and to you know when you get an opportunity. Uh, I, I hate to call the current outbreak an opportunity, but it it is. It's the best chance we've got to see if these vaccines that have languished for years, if they have any chance of, of working and which could help uh, this trial and, and hopefully future trials. All right. Shifting our geography and our time frame reasonably considerably now from right now in West Africa to Germany millions of years ago. About 145 million years, plus or minus. And why does anyone care about that particular uh, era? Ah, good question. Because that's when uh, Archaeopteryx lived. Archaeopteryx, for those of you who don't remember, was or is the first bird. It was discovered, it was a fossil discovered in the 1860s in quarries in southern Germany. And it it was this, it was unlike anything else. You know, it had feathers and wings like a bird, but it had a tail and teeth like a lizard or a dinosaur. And so it was this perfect transitional species. And for for decades, people looked to Archaeopteryx as the first bird, the beginning of the lineage that you know we now know so well. But things are changing. You know, we've we've been discovering in the last few decades lots and lots of feathered dinosaurs, and so Archaeopteryx position has been challenged. And uh, in the last month or so, uh, lots of paleontologists, vertebrate paleontologists, have got together and re-examined old specimens, found some new ones that have just added some more confusion to this uh, to this distinction. Right. As a, as I report in Nature this week, Archaeopteryx research is enjoying a bit of res- a resurgence after kind of falling by the wayside to all these sensational dinosaurs in in China. These these feathered dinosaurs, uh, like Microraptor. Um, that's my favorite dinosaur. I know. That's why I mentioned it. That's you know, Archaeopteryx is is getting new interest. And what's driving this? People are finding uh, some new specimens, or their their new specimens are are coming to light. Um, one specimen that was presented at this meeting. It's known as the Diting specimen after after an area in Germany where it was found, but it's also known as the Phantom because it was found in the 1990s, went into private collections, and then just kind of vanished until a few years ago when it's been kind of, somebody bought it and um, he, he's now made it available to scientists. And these researchers presented kind of a new analysis and a new whole body scan of it. But this new Archaeopteryx research, I think, is different from the position that it had in the past, whereas it used to be the first bird, the beginning of flight, you know, all, all these things. People are realizing that feathers were around before Archaeopteryx. Uh, things might have glided before Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx might not even be a bird. It might be a dinosaur. And so we're learning a lot about this fossil, but we're also putting it in this really in- messy transition between dinosaurs and birds. And I really liked the the quote that uh, one of one of my sources told me. He said, you know, dinosaurs are birds. Birds are dinosaurs. You know, live with it. 
poor little Archaeopteryx pulled pulled in several different directions by its uh, paleo studiers. The quote you just gave is quite apt, isn't it? Because, you know, live with it. Who cares? What does this mean for people who care about birds and dinosaurs and even people who don't? necessarily care that much. Yeah, this idea that you have this one shimmering example of the first bird, it's nice and convenient, and it's it's probably really useful for educational purposes to, sh- to teach people that uh, birds are the dinosaurs that didn't go extinct, but it's not how evolution works. You know, uh, transitions between forms are messy, and the fossil record is incomplete, so you're never going to have the first bird or the last dinosaur. Doesn't stop me wanting an Archaeopteryx as a pet, though. OK, thanks, Ewan. Read those stories and more at nature.com slash news. Join us again next week for some real-life spider sense tingling. And remember, send us your science questions in need of answers by December the 14th. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. 